Good evening, a very warm welcome to you all, um, wherever it is you're joining us from. We do wish you to be blessed and we pray that God will bless us as we come together around his word again this evening. It's our privilege to bring you uh, this service, this gospel message as well from Stornoway Free Church. Just one announcement to, to make before uh, I begin the service. Uh, most of the congregation will already know that we have decided to return to using the seminary building for our midweek meeting. And the first of these uh, will be on the 25th, Wednesday the 25th, uh, we'll be returning to uh, using the building. Now, obviously there's a limit on numbers and the protocol and the directions and uh, details are all available on website and Facebook page. And uh, if you don't have access to anybody who doesn't have access to those, um, can easily get printed copies from Marianne or just phoning any of ourselves if you want to know the details. And it's important that we keep to those um, because uh, there is a certain protocol in place which we really have to be strict about um, as we come to return to using the seminary building. That's a cause for rejoicing and we pray that that itself will bring further encouragement to us as a congregation. So tonight let's uh, begin our service of worship singing first of all in Psalm 67. Psalm 67 on page 301 uh, of the psalm books, that's in the Scottish Psalter. And we'll sing to the tune Tiverton. Lord, unto us be merciful, do thou us also bless, and graciously cause shine on us the brightness of thy face. So on through to the end of the psalm, the second version of Psalm 67, Lord, unto us be merciful. Lord, unto us be merciful, do thou us also bless, and graciously cause shine on us the brightness of thy God shall us bless. 
Our first reading of God's Word tonight is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. The Gospel according to Matthew uh, 25, from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. May God follow with his blessing our reading that portion of his word. Let's now call upon him in prayer. Let's address our minds in prayer to God. You are God the King, immortal, invisible, unchangeable, one who is almighty, all-powerful, all-wise, all-holy and righteous in all that you do. We thank you, Lord, for all the attributes that belong to you, that you have revealed to us in your word. We thank you for the perfection of them, each of them and all of them together. We bless you, O Lord, that we come to worship you as that God described in his word who's revealed himself to us in such a wonderful way who has come into our darkness the darkness caused by our sin the darkness of this world of this universe and has come into it in the person of Jesus Christ your son we thank you O Lord that you are directing all things towards that end that you have appointed, towards your perfect judgment of which we have been reading. And we thank you that every event that takes place in the history of the world up to that moment will indeed be taken account of by you, that each individual life known to you so minutely and perfectly will find its own place in the way in which you administer your judgment. We thank you, O Lord, for the security that is in the righteousness of Christ for us. 
And we thank you that your word assures us that that righteousness is ours when we come to receive him, welcome him into our lives and believe and trust in him as our saviour. We thank you, O Lord, for the millions today throughout the world who have come to worship you and worship you now, uh, paying a, a great heed to uh, the words that you have given us in the Bible and coming especially to acknowledge their indebtedness to you, that you have come to reach out toward them in salvation. We thank you, O Lord, ourselves for your continued goodness to us and we bless you that in that goodness you continue to uh, keep the gospel before us through your word and through the way in which your spirit blesses it to us. We thank you, O Lord, for all that attaches itself to the gospel by way of your own promises, that your word will not return to you empty. You accomplish all that you have purposed through your word. Your word brings to pass your will as it is done among human beings and in the universe you have created. We thank you that your word always has a response to it that accords with your will and purpose. We thank you tonight, Lord, for the privilege of being together in this way, though it is not as we would desire. Yet we thank you for this facility, for this medium that we can use, O Lord, to know that we are together in mind and spirit, though not in body. We thank you for every household and every individual that has joined together tonight in this service and other services like it. Lord, we pray that through your spirit, your word will be blessed to us indeed. We ask that your blessing will continue to be with us as we anticipate and plan to come together in our midweek meetings in a week or two's time. Gracious Lord, we give thanks that you have enabled this and we pray that you would bless us as we prepare the way for it. And we ask that you would continue, O Lord, uh, to make provision for us during these critical times when we know that this virus is affecting so many millions in the world, so many nations throughout the earth. Oh Lord, we look to you for our help, for you are the only one who has that arm of strength that your word speaks of to deliver us from such circumstances as these. We acknowledge our dependence upon uh, human ability that you have yourself created. For those especially who are set on having a virus, having a, um, an antivirus prepared, and we ask that you would grant, O oh Lord, that that will move at pace so that it will be available safely as a vaccine to meet this COVID epidemic. Gracious Lord, we pray that uh, as we set these things before you, that we may nevertheless depend upon yourself ultimately. We pray for the nations of the world. We have been singing, O oh Lord, in your praise of how our desire is that the nations will come to know you, to bow in acknowledgement of your Lordship. We pray that as the gospel goes forth throughout the world, that many others will hear it and value it and respond to it in the way of believing and trusting in you. We ask that you would bring many into your kingdom, even through these difficult times. We know in the past that now you have used great crises in history uh, as uh, circumstances by which you brought many to know yourself, by which you brought that conviction that God is above all these things in his sovereignty. 
We pray that this way be so for us in these days as well. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would grant your blessing uh, so that throughout the world people may turn to the Lord. Out of atheism, out of uh, other systems of belief and philosophies that cannot save us, that cannot themselves give us security for eternity. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would send forth your light and your truth to the ends of the earth, to bring people into uh, an awareness and an acceptance of Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing, especially at this time, for our own nation. And we pray again for our leaders. We ask, O oh Lord, for those in government, that you would bless them with uh, enlightened minds. We pray that you would steer them by the principles of your word, not only in regard to uh, this virus, but also to everything else that they need to decide on that affects us from day to day. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Exalt us morally and spiritually. Grant that you would turn your face away from our sin, for our iniquity is indeed a blot upon the landscape of our nation. And we pray, O Lord, for ourselves, that our own lives may also show that purity of purpose, that purity of behaviour in accordance with your word. We confess to be your people, help us to show it, Lord, in the world, that we may be more and more like yourself. We ask your blessing, too, for that great nation of the United States have gone through these difficult months of choosing a president and an administration. Bless them, we pray, at this time when there is still much turmoil and uncertainty. We ask that you would bless uh, the incoming president, Joe Biden, committing him to you, asking, O oh Lord, whatever views they or others may have or ourselves of him or of what he will lead as an administration, uh, you have called upon us to pray for all who are in authority at all times. We pray too for Donald Trump as he comes to this particular point in his own life and in his presidency. We commend him to you also, asking, Lord, that you would uh, bless him and that you would bring him uh, further uh, into the knowledge of your word. And we pray that uh, in his own background, which he speaks about so often uh, in regard to his mother and her upbringing and what she gave him, we pray that he will know of the power of the gospel in his life and to the influencing of many. Bless that nation, Lord, we pray, and prevent further disruption, and violence, and grant to unite them, we pray, under your own truth. Bless your people amongst them and all who gather from time to time to worship as we do here. Bless the gospel among them and grant that you would deliver many there from the darkness of atheism and the darkness of secularism. Whatever else prevents them, O oh Lord, from people from coming to know yourself. And so be with us, we pray, and continue and to bless our schools and our hospitals and care homes, all who work there and all who are concerned, Lord, to have uh, the virus prevented from further entry into these places. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would grant your blessing in that regard. Hear us now and continue with us. And uh, cleanse us, we pray, from all our sin. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, children, we're looking at uh, the I Am sayings of Jesus and we've come to John chapter 10. Last time we looked at 
John chapter 10, uh, where Jesus says, I am the door. And tonight we're looking at Jesus saying there, I am the good shepherd. He's talking here in this chapter about uh, shepherds, some of them not good shepherds, who don't really care for the sheep. But he says, I am the good shepherd. Verse 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Every shepherd loves the flock that he looks after. And every shepherd, every good shepherd, knows that flock very well. He doesn't just care for the flock generally, he cares for every single sheep in that flock. And when you see shepherds sometimes on television, or if you know any shepherds or crofters, very often if you ask them about any of the sheep, they'll know exactly what that sheep is like, what that sheep needs. They know its behaviour, its temperament. They know the flock that they're looking after perfectly. And they love the flock. They love every single sheep, even the difficult ones. They've all got their own characteristics like we as human beings have. But every good shepherd loves the flock and loves to look after the flock. And Jesus is talking here about shepherds, which he was very familiar with in his own day. And he says here, some shepherds were not very good when they saw a wolf coming. Uh, a wolf would obviously, obviously want to, obviously want to, destroy the, the sheep, get in amongst the sheep and uh, kill some of them. Well, he says, some of them just fled and left the sheep to the wolves. But he said, I am the good shepherd. And When Jesus came uh, to death, to, to the death of the cross, he didn't run away, even though that was such a terrible death. Remember, the death of Jesus on the cross is more than just death to you and to me. Uh, it's death and the Bible describes uh, death as the wages of sin what we deserve for our sin we're going to mention hell tonight in our in our study of Ecclesiastes and hell that lost eternity that place of the lost that goes on forever that we read in Matthew 25 that's what Jesus had to face that's what we deserve for our sins and that's what he took to himself and he didn't run away from that. Why didn't he run away from that? Not because he wasn't afraid in Gethsemane. He showed elements of being afraid. He was a real human being. And in the face of death, there was a certain fear, naturally. But he didn't run away because he loved his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and he says that later on uh, in the passage that his father loves him because I lay down my life for the sheep. When we think about Jesus as the shepherd um, one of the greatest evidences and proofs that he loves his people is that he died for them the death of the cross and he still actually looks after his sheep even from heaven uh, the shepherding of Jesus goes on as we come to know him as our, as our saviour and our friend, we know that he treats us like a shepherd, carefully looks after his flock. 
He protects us. He feeds us through his word. He has given us <clears throat> his spirit whenever we trust in him. God's spirit comes to live within us. Jesus directs us and Jesus leads us by that spirit throughout our lives. And that love goes on and that love will go on into eternity. Come to the book of Revelation brings us into a description of what things will be like finally after the judgment. And in chapter 7 of Revelation, it ends by speaking of Jesus as the shepherd, who's also the lamb who died for the sheep. The shepherd, he says there, in eternity, for all eternity, forevermore in heaven, Jesus will be leading his flock and feeding his flock. Because it says there that he will lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what heaven really is about. It is Jesus the shepherd looking after his sheep, looking after his people for whom he died. And will that not be a really wonderful experience? Especially when you know that it's never going to come to an end, that nothing is going to interrupt it. It's just going to go on, Jesus feeding his flock, looking after his flock, caring for his flock forevermore. Jesus is the good shepherd. And I hope that you know yourselves, Jesus, as the shepherd of your life. The one who's looking after you, the one who's teaching you, the one who's guiding you, the one who's protecting you. Let's say the Lord's Prayer now together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our second reading is the passage we're looking at tonight, and that's from Ecclesiastes. We've been going through Ecclesiastes, as you know, for quite a few weeks now. Um, and as we're coming to this uh, chapter 8 tonight, we'll read from verses 10 to 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they feared before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat, to drink, and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, 
Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Amen. We pray that God will bless to us that portion of his word. Well, let's come back and look at this passage. Uh, we're looking especially at verses 10 to 13, um, but there's one or two points from the following verses too that we can take into account as we look at this. The Bible never sets out to prove the existence of God. The Bible begins by telling us about the God who has always existed, but it simply brings us straight into the work of God in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no argument saying, here's something by which you can prove that God exists. The Bible is God's word. It's come forth from him. And therefore, you would expect that the Bible would simply acknowledge God's existence as a fact and move on with things from there, which is what it is. But there are certain things that we're used to in our human experience that we can use towards uh, arguing for the existence of God, especially with people who will insist that God does not, in fact, exist. And one of these things, one of these concepts, a very precious thing, is justice. We can argue from justice, what we understand to be justice, dealing with people in accordance with what their behaviour requires, and dealing with people in a way that's righteous or right. We can argue from the concept of justice to the existence of the God the Bible speaks about, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible. Put it this way, if there is no ultimate justice, if there is no authoritative justice above all human life, then the moral universe just falls apart. Look at verse 14 here. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. We'll take account of that verse shortly. But really, you find things there that seem completely contrary to fairness or to correctness. People who are righteous, and yet what happens in their lives is basically the same as what happens to wicked people. If there is no ultimate justice, think about someone, a despot such as Hitler, who didn't have justice administered to him in this world who headed up such a horrible, grotesque, evil regime as the Nazi regime, which resulted in the death of millions and millions of people in the Second World War throughout the whole world. Think of the fact that he was never brought to court because he didn't live to see justice in this world. If there is no ultimate justice, then where does that leave us? When you think about such a person, such a life, such an awful person, where, 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 what are you left with? Well, some people would say, well, that's just how it is. There is no ultimate justice. Things are as they are. We just have to accept that. People will say, uh, 
I don't need to believe in God or believe even in justice. Just the world is as it is. You do your best in it. You treat people as you would expect them to treat you. But let's not talk about ultimates or absolutes or, un or uh, uh, ultimate justice in that respect. Well, that's not how the Bible sees it. And in fact, that's really not how any human being that has a grain of common sense sees it. Because ingrained in your heart and in my heart and in your conscience and my conscience is the need for justice to be done. Justice is something that every human heart insists on. And when you see injustice, you immediately respond to say, that just isn't right. That isn't something that ought to be. That has to be corrected. And so the Bible, you see, brings us, and Ecclesiastes here, brings us to a final judgment. A final judgment where justice is the basis of that judgment. Now, it doesn't go into detail. You need to go to the likes of the New Testament, for example, where we read, which talks about uh, the final order of things, which talks about the last judgment and God's justice in a way that you don't find, of course, as much in detail in Ecclesiastes. But you have the same, you have the, 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 the word of God in its entirety. And so we work from this through to the New Testament because we know it's come from God and it's a unity of truth. Therefore, we can say, looking at that light of the New Testament, that this final judgment, this justice that will be done, is the means by which God will ultimately correct and put it to its rightful place. Whether it's good or evil, it will have its rightful place in the judgment and by the justice of God. And that's as true for the righteous as it is for the wicked. It's as true for those who are in Christ as it is for those who are not. Because justice is really what lies behind the judgment of God of God's people, as we read in Matthew 25, he will say to those on the right, come, inherit the kingdom. Why are they able to inherit the kingdom? Because they are righteous. They are righteous in Christ. They're righteous with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the beauty uh, or one of the most wonderful things about when you accept Christ, you'd actually then come to be, as it's usually put, clothed with his righteousness. And God accepts you as if you had never sinned. Whereas with the wicked, they're just they're uh, judged in a just way as well, but they're not righteous. And therefore, they have their own place in the final order, solemn as that is. So how does this passage in Ecclesiastes bring us forward in thinking about those concepts? What does it have to say? Well, here the writer is making three observations. Three observations. And then, secondly, we find him coming to one conclusion. He makes three observations. First of all, something that's unfitting. And then, secondly, something that's unfinished. And then, thirdly, something that's unfair. Something unfitting. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity or meaningless or futility. What is he actually saying here? Well, he was a great observer of people. We take it the writer was, was solemn and whoever actually is finally responsible for the book of Ecclesiastes under God's direction. He was a great observer of people, of, of, of human beings and how they went about their lives. 
Then I saw the wicked buried. He took note of the burial of people he knew were wicked, the ungodly, people who were not at all concerned to honour God. Of course, wicked in the Bible very often is used not just of those who've done gross sin or evil. Wicked has a whole range of levels in it, if you like, beginning from uh, what you might say is less, a less wicked life than those who've committed murder or whatever else horrors people actually sometimes um, yeah, engage in. Wicked is really the opposite of righteous. So whatever grades you have within wickedness, they are all to some extent the opposite of righteousness. And righteousness, as we've said, is what marks the people of God. That's what he has actually given us in Jesus Christ. But the wicked, he says, I saw them buried. And wickedness, let's remember, it's not something that happens suddenly. It's a chosen habit of life. And what he's saying here is, it could be that he's actually saying they used to go in and out of the holy place, that they were accustomed to going, whether it's the temple or wherever, that holy place, whatever it means, it's probably the temple. But anyway, it was regarded as a holy place, a place of religious holiness. Uh, they used to go in and out of the holy place. It could mean that when they came to have their burial, they were given a believer's burial, even though they were wicked, even though there were people who were not righteous. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Happens all the time. People who are known not to have been godly, sometimes far from it, and yet they're spoken about as if they had been exemplary Christians. They're given a believer's funeral. And here is what he's saying. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. It's a very solemn thing. If you take it that this is really part or part of the pattern of their lives, that they were familiar with the temple, with the things of the temple, with religious practices, with the worship of God there, that they were not strangers to that. It's a very, very telling thing and a very solemn thing that they're described as the wicked. And when they were buried, they weren't changed into righteous people. They were buried as wicked people. In any case, they were praised in the city where they had done such things. In other words, when he says they were praised in the city, it means their wickedness was forgotten. How often you've seen that happening in life, in real life. You've seen people who are obviously ungodly, obviously careless in their own lives as far as anything to do with God or righteousness, who didn't care for other people's lives either, and yet their wickedness is forgotten. They're held up in society as if, they were, as if they were pillars of the establishment. You see, it's the same in every generation of human beings. Things are not as they should be. Things are not in accord with what is right, what is fitting. And that's what he's saying. I observed, I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. And they were praised in the city where they had done such things. He's saying, this is something that is unfitting. It just doesn't fit together properly. The praise that they were given and the lifestyle that they lived. And you still see it to this day. That's why there's a great responsibility on us who preach the gospel, who conduct funerals. Sometimes we may even have requests for 
people who are known to be uh, not righteous people at all, request to sing something or whatever or say things about them that would make out that they were actually uh, very noble Christians. And we can't do that. It's a person's life that tells what's in their heart. And that's what he's saying here. It's unfitting that the wicked should be given a Christian burial. doesn't mean that they, uh, we don't uh, bury people through church services and so on, that, that, that these things are not provided. But it does mean that they are not to be praised in the city where they had done such things as if they had been quite different to what they actually were. Well, that's the first point. He saw something unfitting. Secondly, he's saying he saw something unfinished. He says, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The sentence is delayed. It's not actually been applied in the way that it ought to have been. It's just kept back. It's, it's uh, postponed, if you like. Sometimes, of course, you find and in life as it was then and it is now, um, sentences don't fit the crimes. And there are very obvious instances of that. Uh, and uh, you'll find people complaining about the fact that some people have almost been let off with serious crime. And the sentence, if it's there, doesn't really fit with what actually they have done and been found guilty of. In any case, what he's concerned with here is how uh, any misappropriation or delay in sentencing, in actually dealing with something that's been done wrong, that's wrong and not uh, dealt with properly. He says, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. What is it? What happens when you don't actually have a proper administration of justice, when you have inequity in uh, the field of justice? Well, it encourages more sin. That's what he's saying. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You find people um, that aren't actually punished according to their crime, others take encouragement from that. And they'll say, well, it's worthwhile. If that's all that's going to happen, then fine, let's just keep doing what we're doing. That's what he's saying. This second vanity, he saw something unfinished. And you see, he's taking us to the heart of the matter. He's speaking about the heart of the children of men. That's where the problem lies. And the heart of sinners like you and I naturally is encouraged by seeing things like uh, an unfinished or inequity in regard to dealing with people and what's deserved in fa as far as their behaviour is concerned. So he's saying, I saw something unfitting. I then saw something unfinished, something delayed, something postponed, and that encouraged more sin. And then he's saying, I saw something unfair. Go again to verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And he's saying, there seems to be a discrepancy there amongst human beings and the way human beings are with each other. And you know, this is actually similar I think to Psalm 73. Cast your mind back to Psalm 73. Um, and you know how the psalmist there talks about the dilemma that he had himself. He said, I, I was looking. I nearly slipped away. I nearly stumbled. He's talking about something that really shook his faith. Something that really shook him up spiritually. What was it? He said, I was envious of the arrogance and I 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. They scoff and speak with malice. They set their mouths against the heavens. And they say, how can God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What he's really saying is, these people are getting off with it. They have such an easy life. They're able to build up all this wealth. They're able to use that wealth to further themselves in their life of sin. And he says, here am I. I'm trying to keep the way that God has set out for me. I'm trying to keep myself obedient to God. All day, day long, he said, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning in vain. I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Does that not sound like Ecclesiastes? Then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors and so on. See, that was the problem. He had not set what he was observing in the light of eternity. He had simply looked at this present life and was confining his thoughts and his observations and his conclusions to this life. And he was shaken up in his faith when he realised just how prosperous and just how much they were able to move on, those that he called the wicked. Contrary, contrary to himself. And that's where Ecclesiastes is taking us to. Because what it's saying to us here is you have to go beyond the things that are under the sun. You have to go beyond the things that you see in this life when they're unfitting, when they're unfinished, when they're unfair. Ecclesiastes, you see, is taking us to final justice. He's preparing our minds to deal with the things of eternity. He's preparing our minds to think of God's judgment and how God's judgment will ultimately put everything right as it should be. The place of the wicked and the place of the just will be made obvious and it will be fitting in that day. So these are the three observations. He sees something unfitting. He sees something unfinished. And he sees something unfair. And then from that, he draws one conclusion. Now, Ecclesiastes, as we've seen, is really putting us in the real world of the present, the real world of now. This is how things are. This is how things are under the sun. This is what I'm observing human beings in their lives, in their lifestyles, in their relationships. But Ecclesiastes does not leave us in the world of now because as we're seeing now, he's beginning to open the door to us to the real world of then, of eternity, of things after this world or beyond this world. Things of final justice and judgment. This is what he's saying. Yet he says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. That's the one conclusion that he's coming to. It will be well with the righteous, but it will not be well with the wicked. You combine them into one conclusion, involving both the righteous and the wicked. This is what he's saying. Let's look at them briefly. He's talking, firstly, it will be well. Verse 12, for those 
who fear God because they fear before him. But you notice how that verse begins. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. In other words, he's saying to us, despite the fact that you might be drawn aside, as Psalm 73 was, the psalmist there, or even people uh, that he's thinking about here in terms of how they're not uh, fitting or, un unfin or finished or fair in this life. doesn't matter, he says. Remember how things will be. Those who fear God, it will be well with them. Now, the fear of God, we've come across it already in Ecclesiastes, and we'll come across it again. In fact, it's a major part of the final chapter. The fear of God, we've said just briefly, is living in awe of God, living in reverence for God, living in honour to God, living in love for God. You cannot separate the fear of God and the love of God because they're conjoined concepts. Living in the worship of God. All of these things belong to the fear of God. God-fearer, a God-fearer is how Christians uh, used to be known. It's not such a common term now, but it's a wonderful term. A God-fearer is somebody who lives in awe and reverence and honour and love for God. Now, if we don't have Jesus tonight, we should be afraid of the judgment of God. Because to die and come under the judgment of God without having Jesus, without having the righteousness of Christ, well, you know what that's going to be. We'll speak about it in a minute. It's going to mean all that hell is described, however briefly it is described in the Bible. But when I accept Jesus... When you come to actually accept him, then you come to, in him, have your sin already judged. When you come to accept Jesus, you come to accept the fact that God has actually paid out the price of sin, your sin, and it's no longer lying on your shoulders or my life. It's no longer something that's going to go with you towards the judgment. Jesus has done that already. The judgment of God has taken place in him and on him. And so you adore God. You live in awe of God because of that, in response to that. Not in order to gain that or to win that or to deserve that righteousness. No, your fear of God is a response to the fact that God has already brought you to know him and forgiven your sin and set you right in Jesus Christ. John Murray, a theologian, a Professor John Murray, the late John Murray, put it this way. The fear of God and love for God are but different aspects of our response to him in the glory of his majesty and holiness. That's from his book, Principles of Conduct. Let me just read it again. The fear of God and love for God are but different aspects of our response to him in the glory of his majesty and holiness. And here is Ecclesiastes saying, Whatever you see in a sinner's life, however people may be encouraged to go on in that life, however they may dismiss eternity and dismiss judgment, however tempting it may be to actually follow their pattern of life, be sure of this, he said, that though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, however much it may seem to be to his advantage, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. 
they're the ones who are going to benefit ultimately. They're the ones who are going to be the gainers in the end. And you see he's saying here, um, it will be well because they fear before him. There's a sense in which they're conscious already of God's presence in their lives. They're living under that known presence of God. And so they live accordingly in love and in fear of God. It will be well for them. But you see, you don't have to leave it till you think about the final judgment uh, to take these words and say it will be well with them. That's really what it's saying. But it's also true, isn't it, that it is well with them now. It is well with them now. Because the same God, the same Jesus, the same righteousness is theirs. Remember the words of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the, uh, the words, uh, It is well with my soul. And one of the verses says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Despite all that he had gone through in losing some of his beloved family at sea, this is what he wrote. And he wrote it, it seems, over that very spot in the Atlantic where the ship carrying them had perished. It is well, it is well with my soul, thou hast taught me to say. And that's for you and for me tonight such an important thing. It will be well with those who fear God. It is well with those who fear God. But it shall not be well with the wicked. That's the second part of this one observation, this twofold observation. It will not be well with the wicked. Now verse 12 comes into that as well. And even though they may be encouraged as the wicked to live as they're living, even though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolong his life, yet I know that it will not be well with the wicked. However well it goes with them in this life, however well they get on in worldly terms, however much they may seem to be successful in their pursuit of ungodliness or atheism or whatever it is that's contrary to the life that God commends and offers in the Bible, it will not be well with the wicked. Let me just read a couple of very solemn passages in this regard. First of all, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus explained the parable of the weeds, as it's called. And when he left the crowds, his disciples came, explained to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He said, the one who sows the seed, the good seed, is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun, in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. And of course, we read uh, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, also a very solemn passage, where you find it concluding there, these who will go away, uh, those who did not love the Lord, with many opportunities to do so, but didn't, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
And of course, when you then come to the final book of the Bible, the Revelation and the likes of chapter 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. and No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. <coughs> the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, heaven is far, far better than we can possibly imagine in this life. But so is hell, much worse than we can imagine. That's why it's so important that we take account of what God is saying. Never mind those who have the idea these things are just figments of man's religious imagination. That these are just event inventions down through the years of how certain human beings saw things and philosophized about life and the possibilities or otherwise of the world to come. Remember, this is God's view of things. This is God's word. This is God's truth. This is coming from him who is truth. Which would you rather have? God's truth telling you how awful it is in a lost eternity? Or human philosophy saying, don't worry about these things. They're probably not true anyway. And if they are, they'll not be as bad as what it seems. Yes, they will. It'll be worse. But heaven is better than you can imagine. Better than you can possibly imagine in this world. And you know, the, the, the beauty of, of the Bible is that, yes, it speaks to us about death and it speaks about hell. And Ecclesiastes, as we've seen, takes us into some very, very solemn and dark things. But the Bible is always in the concern to put the positive life, eternal life, heaven above the things that are dark and negative. Because that is why Jesus died. Now, Jesus died not to condemn sinners, but to save his people, to make us righteous, even though there will be some who will not be saved and who will be damned and who will end up in hell. So tonight, let me ask you as I ask myself, is it well with your soul? Will it be well with your soul after you die? As you make these three observations with the writer of Ecclesiastes, as you see much around you, even in your own life, that's unfitting, something that's unfinished, things which ought not to be so, as you see life sometimes very unfair by way of human judgment, you have to come to this conclusion with the writer. It will be well with those who fear God, but it will not be well with the wicked. Which side of that line are you and I on tonight? Because our eternity depends on how you answer. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we know that 
your word brings us uh, some things which are difficult to confront but it tells us about solemn uh, solemn truths and things which we ourselves would naturally shy away from but wish were not true and we give thanks lord that you have revealed them to us so that we might aspire towards that which is good and lasting and wholesome and shy away and leave behind us those things which are evil and wicked and sinful. We thank thee for the clarity with which you have revealed to us the way of salvation, the way by which in choosing it and coming to know you and accepting you as our Saviour, we thereby turn now back on that life of sin and on that lost eternity that we deserve. Bless to us your word, we pray again tonight. Hear us and continue with us and pardon our sins. Wash us freely and fit us for heaven, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude now by singing Psalm number 11. This is from uh, Sing Psalms, page 13. Psalm number 11, we're singing <coughs> verses 4 to 7. And the tune is Finart. The Lord is in his holy place, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. His eyes observe the human race, and in his sight each one is known. Verses 4 to 7 of Psalm number 11 and sing Psalms. The Lord is in his holy place. The Lord is in his holy place. The Such punishment. 
may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen. Thank you once, once again for joining with us in this service, uh, and we trust that God will bless us in the days ahead, and especially that he may keep you safe and well and uh, conduct you further on in your life spiritually. Thank you.